0: Hi, I'm Bobby, and I'm your friend who knows just a little bit too much about pop culture. Welcome to your weekly meeting of Pop Culture Fanatics Anonymous. So, this week was a pretty big week as far as renewals, anniversaries, just kind of the very tame aspect of pop culture. So, of course, as always with every episode, we're going to start with our opening minutes. And the first thing on the docket for opening minutes is that this past week, A Disney Channel original series that I love very dearly, one of the best I would say, turned 20 years old. 20! And that was none other than Miss Kimberly Ann Possible, Kim Possible, turned 20 this week. To say I feel old is an understatement. Because now we're reaching a time in, you know, pop culture where things that I was like actively around for and actively participated in are now being seen as nostalgic, and now I, I get why millennials are are really fighting against aging. I get that urge. I I'm I'm seeing it happen in real time between Kim Possible turning twenty, which is okay, and then I'm just seeing a lot of like late two thousands, early twenty tens, just media content, fashion become nostalgic like there are people who are like emulating it like how like my generation will probably like emulate like the late 90s early 2000s aesthetic or even just like the 90s aesthetic in general we're getting to that point and to say that i'm struggling to wrap my head around that is an understatement but it's just insane it's 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 wild Kim Possible was like obviously one of my favorite shows on Disney Channel it was a phenomenal show and I think if I'm remembering it correctly it was one of those shows that was like they geared it towards girls but like boys also liked it like they had an issue with like gearing it just towards girls because a lot of boys ended up liking the show too so it was like a very universally loved show and i think it was supposed to like end in season three or something and then they came back for like a season four or five or something like that it got two movies the the voice cast phenomenal christy carlson romano will fredell raven simone like so many awesome like people like just randomly in this cast for the show i like that kim was just such a dynamic like she's not a superhero she's just like a super spy but i don't know that crux was just so cool to me as a kid and the main thing that i loved about it was similar to what i loved about totally spies in that kim had like gear and gadgets that was very girly like the oh my gosh the Hair dryer, grappling hook iconic so iconic like so many things that are like like were makeup themed would be like useful gadgets that she could use which now i'm thinking about it i definitely think totally spies kind of bit off of impossible on that aspect but it was still like the coolest to me I love that show so, so much. And I actually might go and watch a couple episodes on Disney Plus after I did this podcast because that's just how much I love it. It was just such a phenomenal show. Also, the theme song? The theme song? Sung by Christina Melian and Christy Carlson Romano? Please, please. So good. So good. Phenomenal, phenomenal show. If you haven't seen it in a while, I highly recommend revisiting it. I think when disney plus like finally put a bunch of the like disney channel shows i went back and rewatched the first couple episodes from season 1 and i was like kind of floored by how like good it was still so i highly recommend going and revisiting it because it's quite good it's a very good show another iconic piece of media turning 20 technically today The day that I'm recording this podcast is none other than the live-action Scooby-Doo movie, released in 2002, starring Freddie Prinze Jr., Sarah Michelle Gellar, Linda Cardellini, and of course, Matthew Lillard as Shaggy, which is probably some of the best casting I've ever seen in my life. If you follow me on TikTok, you know that when it comes to Scooby-Doo, I go all out. I go all out. So... You know, you can be expecting some Scooby-Doo content in the next week or so from me. And next week's podcast episode we will be taking to kind of wrap up the festivities of celebrating this movie's 20th anniversary. Next week's episode will be a deep dive into the live action Scooby-Doo movie. So get hype for that. But the live action Scooby-Doo movie is a movie that I have like held up and will continue to hold up as one of the greatest movies ever made. Is it without fault? No, it's not. I watched it last night, which will probably be the 100th time that I have seen it now. And it is definitely a movie where you can see some of the the frayed edges. Not gonna lie. The CGI is questionable. Some of the lines in the movie are also questionable. But overall, that doesn't make me love it any less. I, for whatever reason, I think it was like, I remember owning it on VHS. It was like one of the last movies that I ever got on VHS when I was a kid. And I would re re-watch it like over and over and over and over again. And for a long time, it felt like, I don't think it, it was seen as being, I don't think it's ever been seen as being like, good in an objective way, but like a lot of people enjoyed it. And for a long time, I don't think a lot of people talked about it or it seemed like everyone liked it, but was quiet about it. And then one day someone was like, actually, the live-action Scooby-Doo movies are pretty good. And we were all like, yeah, I've been thinking that this whole time. So that is, that's kind of the, 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 the crux of it for me. I just think it's a really fun movie. I like the fact that it just always knew what it was. You know, Like, it always knew what it was. It never tried to be smarter than the source material. It never tried to be, you know, this, like, subversive thing. Like, it was very of its time. The the cast all, like, played their characters so well. The idea to hire a real-life couple to play Fred and Daphne is kind of, like, legendary, if you ask me like the the tension somewhat between freddie prince jr and sarah michelle geller who were a real life couple at this point playing freddie and daphne i mean it's just like that's a big brain thought like that's kind of genius when you think of it and then i don't know how but like lena Cardellini playing velma who she was like lena Cardellini is like always been like cool to me and so the fact that she was able to play this very like nerdy character but still like retains a sense of coolness to it impeccable work and also obviously the standout the star i would say of scooby-doo 2002 is obviously matthew lillard playing shaggy it seems like the spirit of shaggy uh really possessed his body well while doing those two movies but if you don't know there are two live-action Scooby-Doo movies with this cast. It's Scooby-Doo and then Scooby-Doo 2 Monsters Unleashed, which is still also a good movie. It's not as good as the first one, but it's still good. But something happened with Matthew Lillard. He got cast as Shaggy and then became Shaggy. He almost like blacked out. And then when the movie was done, he came to and he was like, okay, what what happened? I've been gone for like three months or however long it took to, to shoot the movie. And that was just it. He really embodied the hell out of that character i don't know i don't know what to say it was just phenomenal work it really was but and also like shaggy or shaggy matthew willard he's basically gone on to play shaggy in a lot of the major iterations of scooby-doo that followed that movie like he was definitely the go-to guy after casey Kasem passed away or when he like kind of retired from acting I think casey Kasem gave matthew lillard like his official blessing to be the new shaggy and he he fully embodied the character i was watching it last night and it was with like some of my friends and one of my friends was saying that it's crazy how he embodies shaggy both in like his like speech pattern you know obviously saying like you know like oh zoinks whatever like all all of that but also physically he was able to kind of embody shaggy like he kind of like slinks about. He's very lanky. Like he just the the physical acting that's happening in that movie is really really good. And that's not just from Matthew Lillard. The entire cast is like able to really fully embody their characters in their like their body language, their vocal cadence, the the costuming. Is, oh my gosh, the costuming is so good. I feel like I should be saving all this. For the episode next week. But you guys will just see the episode next week. So. Or hear it. So. Just be cool if I say all these things again. Okay thanks I love you so much. But yeah. All in all. The the live action Scooby-Doo movie has a very special place in my heart. It is one of those. It's one of those movies. Similar to one that will be kind of the subject of today's episode that makes you fall in love with movies and in a weird way i have movies that are very like you know critically acclaimed highly regarded you know pretty pretty solid in production like you know not too many flaws and then you have movies (laughs) you have movies like this that you know weren't necessarily loved by critics they were panned when they came out but then you just have them and they're like imprinted on your memory so much and you're just like i just love i just love this movie and no one's gonna stop me from loving this movie and no one stopped me from loving this movie and it, in fact i feel like i forced the world around me to 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 come around and love it and i don't know sometimes manipulation kind of works i'm just saying i am just saying but anyways we move on one of the last things on our, our docket for opening minutes is that we had a lot of renewal-like news. A lot of things that are leading into the summer because, you know, the summer is a big time for entertainment. We get shows coming back. We get blockbuster releases at the theaters. We get things that are set up for, like, fall releases. is a big time. This is a a pretty crucial time uh, for us to get a lot of entertainment news. So mainly it was a big week for me, I would say. Number one, what we do in the shadows is coming back on July 12th. So, Real Television is coming back on July twelfth for season four, and it was also announced that they have been renewed for seasons five and six. So, what we do in the shadows, fans, get hype, get hype. Side note about what we do in the shadows: I did not realize there was so much crossover between what we do in the shadows, fans, and um, oh, our flag means death fans. I'm I'm happy that we have a certain kinship with each other. I did not know that we were kind of buddies, pals, acquaintances, sisters, brothers, siblings, but I'm happy that we share the space together. I really do. I have said that I need to give Our Flag Means Death another try. It, I'm not gonna lie, and don't, don't fight me because I know you girls like the tussle, but don't fight me on this, but Our Flag Means Death, the fandom, from what I've seen now, I'm not in the trenches with the fandom, but the fandom from afar, was giving me the vibes of being on 2013 tumblr with the super hulakian group a lot of very passionate fans can feel a bit gatekeepy at times and that just wasn't that wasn't my testimony i don't want to do that but i'm going to give it another try i'm going to give it another try i am going to if i love it i will talk about it if i don't well then you know what that means but it definitely gave me that energy initially. Now I know a lot of people who love the show, who like it in a, you know, regular decent way. They write their fan fiction, they do their fan art, you know, the usual thing. But I I just wanna say that if I don't like this show, don't try and convince me because I will not be convinced. It's already hard enough to get me to watch something on a recommendation. This is something about me. If you have ever recommended something to me, just know that I love and value you recommending it to me, but there's something that goes on in my brain that says we're not going to watch it. And it's not because you recommended it to me. It is, I simply do not like being told that I would like something. (laughs) It's bad and it's something that I need to work on. And I feel like I'm getting there. I'm doing a little bit better with it, but I, it's hard. It's hard for me to take recommendations on media for whatever reason. It is incredibly difficult, but I, I'm going to try my best. I'm going to try my best. So it's been recommended. I'm going to try our flag means death again, because I tried getting through the first episode and it just wasn't vibing with me. So I'm going to give it another try and then we will go from there. But that's not what we're talking about. What we do in the shadows coming back for season four and five and six later on and also i okay this is not something that i'm proud of but sometimes push very well has to come to shove and i have been semi-bullying hbo max on twitter uh, about the uh, specifics of when this show that i'm about to say is coming back and they've been giving me crumbs and so now i'm about to pull out the dire straits i, I think i'm at that point but before i do that harley quinn which is an HBO Max animated show that is absolutely phenomenal and I love it so much, is apparently coming back sometime this summer. We don't have a date yet. They kind of just said like, oh, we're coming back this summer. And it's like, that's great. But what day this summer? Because I'm tired of asking. I've been waiting two years for season three. And frankly, I'm getting tired of waiting. I'm getting tired of waiting. But... I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna bully HBO Max. I'm not gonna bully HBO Max. I'm not gonna do that. I would never do that. Unless they push me to it, then I will do that. But I, I'm just happy that it's coming back at some point in my lifetime. And that I will be able to see my favorite lesbian supervillains just hanging out, you know, just having a good time. But we will see. And also coming up, we got a lot of other releases this, this month in the film sector of things we've got Lightyear starring Christopher Jamal Evans and Kiki always keeps a job Palmer <laughs> and Tiger Ytt they're all three of them are in uh, are in lightyear and I'm really excited for that we have Thor 11 Thunder coming up mainly in July but I'm just gonna say like it's the premiere I think it's like the end of this month and Marvel if anyone from Marvel is listening you won't offend me with an invite to the premiere you never will I will never be offended with a little a quick little email saying, Hey, girly, we'd love for you to come. And I'll be like, Oh my gosh. I'll be there. You know, you won't offend me with that. Just thought I'd let you know. Just putting that out there. It's called manifestation or being delusional. Either way, you know, you gotta you gotta advocate for yourself. So Marvel, if you're if you're listening, I feel like you have a character who wears box braids. And box braids are one of my signature styles. So I feel like there's a natural way in. Valkyrie and I are, are one in the same. I'm just saying. So, you know, just saying. Balls in your court. Anyways, obviously Thor Love and are really looking forward to that towards the kind of the middle of the summer. And then, of course, we have Jurassic World Dominion that is releasing in theaters this week. I'm going to see it tomorrow. AMC is doing a, I think, what is a phenomenal idea. They're doing a double feature with jurassic park and jurassic world dominion so i will be sitting in a theater watching dinosaurs for five hours and truly living my best life i think very excited but they are they're doing that and i'm gonna go i'm gonna be there i'm gonna go see it and that kind of leads us to what we're talking about today don't you guys love my segues i just feel so big-brained every time i come up with a good segue oh my gosh so good anyways but that if you don't know jurassic world dominion is the conclusion of the jurassic park jurassic world kind of saga so i thought the perfect way that we send off this film franchise this pillar of of hollywood is by taking a look back at the first film, the film that started it all, Jurassic Park, 1993's Jurassic Park. So we're going to take a peek into a bit of the history. It's going to be mainly me fangirling because it is one of my favorite films of all time. So if that sounds good to you, let's get started. So it's almost crazy to think of a hollywood landscape that doesn't have jurassic park in it um it's been this like endearing favorite that has definitely like survived the massive like you know deck like the decades of pop culture since it came out it's almost it will be, tomorrow it will be 29 years old exactly so basically 30. um and it's just been this endearing favorite that's just straddled across generations and you know, families love Jurassic Park and everything like that and obviously has spawned, you know, so many sequels and spinoffs. It's absolutely ridiculous. It's still being praised for its storytelling, the performances, the music, the effects. All And all of this is happening decades after it happened and decades after, you know, a lot of the technology that was used in the film was still pretty rudimentary and very early like in the very early stages of being something that was used in film quite a bit. Jurassic Park is a fixture within movie history and has a story that is nearly 65 million years in the making. But how did it get to be such a big hit? Well, like everything that happens in Hollywood, it mainly begins with a book. So the book Jurassic Park was written by Michael Crichton in 1990 and before the book was even published Hollywood was basically like chomping at the bits to get rights to it. So much so that there were four studios that were in competition to acquire the rights for Crichton's novel. Again like I said before it was even published like Regular people didn't have their hands on it, but Hollywood knew that Michael Crichton was writing the story, and they heard the kind of general idea of it, and they were like, "Oh, this is going to make a lot of money. let's let's hop on this." And ultimately, of course, the 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 person, the entity that won the bid for it was Universal Studios and Steven Spielberg. Now, allegedly, Spielberg found out about Crichton's screenplay. For or the novel slash the screenplay for Jurassic Park in like 1989, when they were discussing a different screenplay of Michael Crichton's, which would eventually go on to be the series ER, which starred George Clooney. If you don't know, ER was created by Michael Crichton. So Spielberg was already feeding to tell this story. He had known about it for you know a little bit longer than I would imagine other people had. And obviously he he won the bid. And I think, you know, there are other directors who could have done it. But there's something there's something about a Spielberg touch on a story like this that I think definitely set it apart from other directors who might have tackled it. I think a lot of directors probably would have gone in a much more gritty, probably scary thriller direction and th- this isn't to say that jurassic park isn't scary in in moments because it is it's legitimately terrifying but in a very kind of spielbergian way like in the same way that et is scary at points um and how lake spielberg kind of uses the uh the kind of classic horror movie tactic of keeping the scary thing in the dark. I mean, you kind of just are relying on sound. That is what he uses in Jurassic Park and it becomes legitimately terrifying at points. But I think some of other directors might have gone for a like bluntly horror thriller aspect, a lot more gory, a lot more bloody, um, but I think having Spielberg have his his magic touch on it really made all the difference, at least to me. And also for for my theme park nerds out there, the Jurassic Park ride that's at Universal Studios, and now it is only I think at Universal Studios Florida, I want to say, or, or Orlando. Um, it also went into production at the same time as the movie. So when they acquired the rights for it, they started the movie and the ride at the same time. So the ride was being made before the movie was even done. So that's just how that was that speaks to how much Universal Studios believed in this idea. And they were willing to put copious, copious amounts of money down to to see it through. But Once production got started, Spielberg's kind of vision for Jurassic Park was for it to almost be this kind of like spiritual successor to his first big hit. So he had done kind of a creature story in water and now he wanted to tackle doing a creature story on land. You could technically say that E.T. was like the first kind of like creature story that he had done on land but really that I'm going to count that as space and even then like E.T. is a creature- in a literal sense but i think there's a different story being told there like et is not really this antagonist figure and i think the dinosaurs at certain points obviously the t rex is kind of an antagonist not a villain just like an antagonistic figure um so that's kind of the 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 appeal the idea of it like i mentioned previously the the film just truly had the full package as far as literally everything goes around it so if you don't mind i would like to just kind of fangirl about about a lot of the aspects of this movie and go through and share some fun little tidbits along the way so obviously We have to start with the performances, we will be seeing the OG three as they're being called in Jurassic World Dominion, which is basically the characters of Alan Grant, Ellie Sadler, and Ian Malcolm played by Sam Neill, Laura Dern, and Jeff Goldblum. And they really set the tone for, I think, what would eventually become this massive pop culture fixture. The three of them, I think, just added a level of realism and authenticity and like that is not something you would expect in a movie like this uh, because it's literally about dinosaurs but there is something about it that they were able to straddle the action of it all and the kind of like the being chased by a you know million year old dinosaur or maybe like at that point not really millions or years old but like going against science and be eaten maybe in the process The three of them, I think, were just the perfect balance of it. My favorite, of course, is Ian Malcolm. There was something, there's something about that all black, all black ensemble that really captured me. Let's just say that it really just got me as, as a, as as a young one um, watching it, and even now I watch it and I'm like, wow, (laughs) wow, wowzers, you know. But overall, I think it's just something about the three of them that really just like makes the the film an instant classic. And even like the kind of ancillary characters. Of course, this was like during the the age in Hollywood where Sam Jackson would just be in things. You're just like, is that Sam Jackson? It's like, yeah, that's Sam Jackson. Like he's attached to so many major pieces of Hollywood history via movies and whatnot. And you're, you're just like, I didn't realize that Samuel L. Jackson was in this, but he is, and he's great. My fellow UGA alumni, Wayne Knight, he's in it. And also there's two kids, I'm for, I'm blanking on their names, so I apologize, but the two kids are also really great too. From a story perspective, and I'll get into this when I get to like the writing and kind of direction piece of it, but from a story perspective, I think they kind of add, they add stakes to the film, obviously. I think if this was just with the og3 it would you would still feel and like feel a lot of you know like tension and drama with these characters but to add kids into the mix obviously adds like you know some pretty like dire straits to it and i think the kids add a level of um sincerity to the to the story for sure especially with how like being that they are kind of split up towards the the beginning of the movie You're kind of split off into two groups or really three groups, technically. Um, But you have the kids and Alan Grant, which Alan is this kind of, you know, he's like, I don't really want to have kids. I don't know what to do with them. I'm very awkward around them. And so Ellie kind of matches the kids with him because she's like, oh, it'll be good for you. Um, And then you have Ellie And Ian Malcolm, which Ian Malcolm is kind of like trying to make the moves on Ellie. And that's kind of a whole thing. But Ellie is with Alan and that's just, yeah, whatever. And then you have Hammond and like the rest of the Jurassic Park staff trying to basically keep the dinosaurs at bay. And obviously they do a poor job of that. But all of the, I think having this story kind of split up between these different pods of characters was definitely effective, especially in the pacing of it. Because if you just stay with one group and they're just constantly like coming and fighting like dinosaur after dinosaur after dinosaur, it kind of can get a little bit old. Weirdly enough, in a movie about dinosaurs, you'd think you wouldn't get sick of seeing the dinosaurs, but you might. Like, I think having the story kind of bounce around between these three groups of characters kind of just adds, you know, necessary stakes and kind of gives you some a little bit of variety within within the narrative for sure one thing that i really love about ian malcolm's character is that he is so smug and like you wouldn't think that he's this like i can't remember what he his official title is I think he's some type of scientist like a a physicist or something like that like he's something that's like a, a very he's a very smart guy but he also has is this like playboy type When a scientist, it's very, it feels like primordial Iron Man in a way, like he kind of plays him, not necessarily in like the way that Tony Stark kind of flaunts around his wealth and, you know, status and everything, but Ian Malcolm is just very like arrogant and smug and he's just like, you know, oh, well. I'm always looking for Mrs. Ian Malcolm or the like the next Mrs. Ian Malcolm and everything like that. And I don't know. It is always so interesting. So from the characters, we move on to the music. The music was obviously done by the incomparable, the incredible, the amazing John Williams, who has done such classics as E.T., Jaws, Harry Potter, like the first Harry Potter, I should say, um, the scores of John Williams are amongst my favorite who's shocked by that if you love Spielberg you probably love John Williams scores too and the the music for Jurassic Park has always struck me because it technically is a movie with two different themes as kind of like the main theme i don't know how to like describe it but you have like the da 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 and then you have the like oh my gosh why am i blanking on it i just had it the like those are two themes that are iconic in their own rise but they're like two unofficial themes for jurassic park which i think is phenomenal there's something about the the scores of john williams that has it's just they're so bombastic like they feel so so big but then when they need to be like itty bitty titty tiny small they can be but there's still like a grandeur to it, nonetheless. Like it feels very, feels very whimsical as well. Like a lot of his his scores have a, a whimsy and wonder to them, which is why I think they work so well with a lot of Spielberg films because his movies are kind of built on whimsy and and wonder. And the score of Jurassic Park, I think, is able to perfectly balance a whimsical and like wondrous sound while also having a bit of gravity and like heaviness to it because they're talking about dinosaurs dinosaurs are these very you know larger than life creatures and they're also these very vicious and aggressive creatures they can be and so to have a score that kind of perfectly like meshes those two ideas together in a way that they don't clash was something that is nothing less than in in impeccable to to hear but i think it definitely perfectly accents certain points in the film like a lot of the the most prominent parts of the movie are movie are points that have you know like a big swell of, of the score under it um so obviously like the probably one of the most famous scenes in the movie is when they, when Ellie, Alan, and Ian, which I'm realizing that all of their names feel the same said in like, in, <laughs> in my mouth, like I'm getting the the names mixed up. But when Ellie, Alan, and Ian see the dinosaurs for the first time, like after being kind of skeptical and not knowing what Hammond had in store and just kind of thinking this was all... Smoke and mirrors and everything and they're putting their kind of like scientific brains aside for two seconds and are able to kind of almost be like little kids again when they see this big like brontosaurus in front of them and you just hear that like da, 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 da. and it just like it just it hits you right at the right ow it hits you <laughs> at the right moment you're just like oh my gosh like this is such a I can't believe they like pulled this off. Like you're almost, you're pulled into the movie in that moment because that's the first time that we see a dinosaur kind of like filling up the screen pretty much. Because up until that point in the movie, you're kind of hit with like glimpses of dinosaurs. You may see like a claw or like a tail or maybe like an eye. There's been suggestions of dinosaurs up until this point, which is like I said, very Spielbergian to do keep the creature in the dark and that kind of built suspense but the first time that we see a dinosaur in you know broad daylight is this big brontosaurus which is very you know it's a herbivore so it's not going to it's not vicious or anything like that and you just see it and you're just like oh my goodness and even now watching this movie which this kind of brings us to the the effects which I'll get to a little bit later but even now watching that shot I'm like oh my god like this still looks good <laughs> it's still like for it to have been produced in the early 90s when the technology to make convincing, you know, like graphics was still very, 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 very new. The way that they were able to pull that off is just like you're you're in in awe of it and the music definitely perfectly kind of captures that feeling jurassic park is one of my favorite scores to list i listen to it all the time i think i'm just like i'm a sucker for a universal studios like movie score i love back to the future i love et i love jurassic park like the even the score for the grinch like any movie that is probably a universal studios produced movie I am probably gonna like the score quite a bit because it's mostly John Williams. It's a lot of John Williams scores and he he knocks that out of the park on, on Jurassic Park, obviously. Um, And then that brings us to kind of the writing and the direction. Spielberg is nothing short of a genius when it comes to, to filmmaking. I think we all can kind of get on the same page that a lot of people really love Spielberg's work. And like I said, the wonder and whimsy of spielberg is definitely so prominent in in this movie um i think there's spielberg is always at his best when he has kids who are able to kind of convey parts of the story or like have kids not as a narrative device but kind of as a narrative device in a weird way the direction of it just there is a expert level of care but also like thrill at times, suspense. One sequence that I'm remembering that is still incredibly suspenseful to me, again, having seen it very recently and this movie is 30 years old pretty much, is the scene where they are, where Alan and the kids are in the, like the tree and they have the Jurassic Park Jeep that was also like kind of put into the tree with them. I think it was like knocked into the tree and they're timmy or timmy that's one of the kids names i can't remember the other the the girl's name but timmy is in this jeep and then alan has to go up and obviously like get him out but now so there was suspense of like getting timmy out of this jeep he's injured like he's scared like (laughs) it's not funny but the first lex is the the girl's name but the first thing that timmy says to to alan when he's like when alan is coming to try and get him out of the the car in the tree is just like i threw up and alan is still very like not knowing how to deal with kids and so he's just like oh it's it's okay it's okay we're gonna get you out of here so they do the whole thing of like getting tim out of the car and then they're working their way down the tr- the tree. Tim is obviously still very scared of what he just like witnessed because this is after the scene with the T Rex. This is the first time we see the T Rex, so he is obviously very scared. But because Alan was getting Tim out of the tree, he turns the wheel of the car. So that now the car is basically following them as they ascend or descend down this tree and is about to hit them, essentially. So that is still a very suspenseful scene. Like, I know that it's going to work out and they're going to be fine because this is happening within the first probably 25 to 30 minutes of the movie. But it never fails to make me feel like, oh my God, like, how are they going to get out of here? Like, they got to hurry up. Um, And the same thing happens when Tim and Lex are in the the kitchen towards the end of the movie with the raptors and they're like having to kind of like crawl and get out of the way and try and sneak their way out of this kitchen without these raptors detecting them. It is so many sequences in this movie that are suspenseful. And then you have sequences that have so much heart to them. Like it's mainly Alan and the kids, any moment that he has with them and like having to make the kids have to be brave for themselves, but then Alan has to be brave for these little these little ones and like, try to, I don't know, like be some type of a pseudo dad figure or just like a, a figure that's gonna protect them. And Alan, I think falls into that role pretty easily. Like he, at the beginning, going back to that T-Rex sequence, he, um when the kids are still like in the car and he's trying to get them out, Lex, she's, <laughs> is one of my favorite lines. But Lex just looks at Alan and he's like, he left us. He left us. And he's he the he that she's referring to is the um, the lawyer who is on the trip with them. And in the beginning, it's like the lawyer and the kids in the car together. And then the lawyer abandons them when the T-Rex comes and hides in like a little cabana, like restroom hut thing. And then he ends up getting eaten. So he gets his karma in the end. But like Lex is freaking out because. She's like the one authority figure that we had in this car, the one adult that's supposed to protect us. He left us and now we're on our own and she's freaking out. And Alan is like, but that's not what I'm going to do. I'm not going to leave you. We're going to, we're going to do this together. And so that's one of my favorite, like kind of subplots of, of the movie. Clearly they're the biggest plot is them trying to get off of this island and not get eaten. But the subplot of Alan kind of growing to, 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 care for others and like you know he may want to have kids one day i think it's really neat the one thing the one gripe that i have and it's not really a gripe it's just something that wasn't ever convincing to me i guess is the whole idea of ellie and alan being in a relationship they never gave relationship in fact they gave friend friend maybe like Couple that dated when they were in high school and they kind of just were like, Oh, this doesn't really work. We're better as friends. And they've just been friends ever since. I never got the vibe that they were like romantically involved. In fact, I feel like Ellie had a little bit more chemistry with Ian. And it may be because I think Laura Dern and Jeff Goldblum were dating at this time. But even then, like, I, the, Alan and Ellie never gave they never gave couple it was just never it was something that I never got from that um but it still doesn't make the the plot of Ellie kind of pushing the kids towards Alan any less impactful to me I would say and so that that kind of brings us to the final bit of it which is probably the most well-regarded bit of this movie. I mean, with everything else going on, but the most well-regarded bit of this movie is the effects and how the effects have held up over, you know, like so many decades later. And one of the big things with the effects that I've, I've talked about, I've done a video and actually I did a video last night on it. So if you've seen that video, you know where I'm, where I'm heading with this, but one of the biggest things with the effects of Jurassic Park is that they were able to have a good balance of CGI and practical effects so like I said this movie came out in the early 90s and in the early 90s there was not CGI wasn't quite where it is now obviously like it is in a much different place (laughs) but back then it was kind of used sparingly like very I wouldn't say haphazardly But it was just used every once in a while. And even when it was kind of used in what was considered to be kind of excess, it never aged well. So, I think Spielberg knew that in order to make these dinosaurs kind of look realistic, he knew that he had to use CGI. But he was like, I can't use it too much because CGI isn't quite where it needs to be yet. So... He was like, okay, practical effects are going to carry the rest of the way through. So originally, when the the film was kind of in production, Spielberg wanted to originally get um, a uh, kind of, I guess, Imagineer theme park animatronic expert, just an uh, expert on all things kind of like animatronics, Bob Gurr. He wanted to get him to make some realistic animatronics of the dinosaurs, and Bob Gurr is also he's made if you've seen um, if you I don't know if you visited Universal Studios uh, like probably 20 years ago but he's known for having made the big King Kong animatronic that was in the Confrontation ride so and he's also made a ton of other like animatronics in Disney World and everything so Bob Gurr when it comes to creating this type of technology you are going to go to Bob Gurr like he is he's still like you know amongst the absolute best within the industry. So Spielberg was going to go to Berger and have him create some some dinos, but he forewent that idea because he thought, number one, it would be incredibly expensive to make two-scale dinosaur robots, and also they wouldn't look or move realistically like as much as he needed them to. So that's when he kind of hatched the idea of like, okay, I'm going to combine the two techniques of... CGI and practical effects. So for the CGI work, he went to his good buddy, good pal George Lucas's effects studio, Industrial Light and Magic, or ILM, and had them do the CGI work. And then for any close-up or like detail shots, he went to Stan Winston, who is like you know physical effects like God. Like he is his he he's done like puppets and everything that are just so like realistic and good. So he had those two techniques combined together and so for a lot of the like far away shots the dinosaurs like moving shots you have ilm cgi work and then for any shots that are like up close so like that the the um iconic scene during the T-Rex scene where the eye, like the the kids are like shining the light on the T-Rex's eye and then the pupil like, not dilates, but recedes and everything. That is Stan Winston's dinosaur models. So having that mixture of the two meant that there was there was going to be kind of a seamless illusion. Like you can't, there are certain shots legitimately in this film that I've, like I've gone back and combed over them and I am still like, where are the CGI shots, and where are the Stan Winston models? Like it's some at some points in the movie, you truly cannot tell, and that is what speaks to the effects of this movie. Thirty years later, like you still Jurassic Park is still regarded as one of the best like movies for effects in this way, even as CGI has progressed. And I'm sure if they, you know wanted to re-release jurassic park and kind of bump up the cgi i'm sure they could and it could look maybe like a little bit more realistic but i think having the puppets at certain points and hat or like puppets slash kind of like animatronics and then having the cgi was able to kind of have this good balance you're not totally dependent on one technology versus the other they're working hand in hand and that is what makes the film So, so timeless. This is starting to be one of my longest episodes ever. And it's because you can obviously tell I I love Jurassic Park. It's definitely, like I mentioned with Scooby-Doo, how Scooby-Doo is one of those movies that made me fall in love with film. Jurassic Park is definitely the, in the top three, like I said, with Back to the Future and E.T. that are films that made me understand, like, this is what movies this is what they can do and this is the impact that they can have on you which is something that hadn't quite dawned me up until the point which i can't remember the first time i saw jurassic park but i will say the first time the first couple of times that i saw it my mind was was blown i think the first time that i saw it actually because my grandma had it on vhs so that was the first time that i had seen it and it was this like you know vhs tapes always have a warm kind of crackly feeling to them and i was i remember sitting and watching it and obviously being terrified rightfully so originally and then i fell in love with it and i just kept watching it and watching it and watching it and i think you know now is a good time to to wrap it up you know like i we've gotten many a movie explaining that maybe dinosaurs shouldn't be theme park attractions and we hopefully are finally learning our lesson with that in Jurassic world Dominion. I'm very excited for the movie. I'm just excited to see these characters that I haven't seen in in so long and see how they they interact with the new age of characters, the new Jurassic world characters and overall, I'm just very excited. I don't know I'm just very I'm excited I'm thrilled um I to be able to be able to go into a theater and watch Jurassic Park on the big big screen for I think. Probably the first time ever is a big deal. So I'm very excited for that. But yeah. I I hope you enjoy today's long episode afternooners if you don't know the afternooners is my name for all of us so if you made it to the end of this episode congratulations you're an afternooner now if you want to know where else to find me on the internet you can find me at the afternoon special on tiktok or on instagram or over on twitter at hi i'm bobby h-i-i-m-b-o-b-b-i you can also find me over on youtube i think my first video will be up hopefully by friday definitely i think or this weekend i'll say it'll be by this weekend um it's taken a little bit longer than i thought it was gonna take but if you're interested in watching me not just hearing me watching me you can find me over on youtube at the afternoon special it just should be the afternoon special you should be able to find me pretty easily from there as you could probably tell or and if you're thinking bobby i'm not gonna remember all that don't worry i put it in the description just for you So you go watch your dinos, you listen to this, you go watch the dinos on screen, whether it's a double feature or not, and then you come back here and all these links will be waiting for you. As you can probably tell, I, I do spend a quite a bit of time researching this these episodes, even if I'm just kind of rambling. And that means that I, I do listen to a quite a bit of, of music or shows or whatever it is while I'm doing it. And so I thought I'd share what this week's episode was powered by. And obviously, this week's episode was powered by John Williams's amazing score for Jurassic Park it's just a great it's a great score and that is definitely what what kept me going through this episode and and got me really excited and obviously had me talking for almost an hour about it so yeah i if you haven't gone back and listened to the entire score for the movie i highly recommend it's so good i hope you enjoyed this week's chat and that you will join me again next week for another pop culture deep dive later days friends